Turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Well, good morning, church. It is really good for me to uh, be here with all of you this morning. Um, don't you love the songs that we just sang? Yeah. And do you notice how um, in these songs, Jesus was given many names. Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the desire of every nation, Jesus uh, the day spring from on high, and then we have some names like Jesus the rod of Jesse. Well, you know, I, I wonder what type of name that you would give to Jesus. Because even during uh, Jesus' times, there were many names that were given him. One day, the uh, disciple Peter came to Jesus, and he said, Lord, some people call you John the Baptist. Some people call you Elijah the prophet. But then Jesus stopped Peter and said, well, but who do you say that I am? So I want you to ponder this one question with me, not just this morning, but as you walk away from this building, as you move on with your life until the day that you die, just think about this one question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? You know, um, names are very powerful and they, names can divide and names can unite. I'll give you one perfect example. Don't do this, but what if I tell you to turn to your neighbor and say, you know, who did you say that um, Donald Trump is? Or who did you say that Joe Biden is? And you, you see, just by doing that, I can already potentially divide this whole entire building. And in this passage, Colossians, <laughs> in this uh, passage, Colossians um, chapter 1, Paul is greatly concerned about how the name of Jesus ought to be treated because names are powerful. And Paul is writing to a people if you look at um, the beginning of this uh, letter, he's writing to a people who have been united by the name of Jesus Christ. However, among them have been some people who I would say are false teachers. They are the early ancestor of a group of people called the Gnostics, where they challenged the name of Jesus. These people, um, according to their philosophy of Greek mysticism, believe that the immaterial, the divine, cannot mix with the material, the human flesh. So therefore, according to them, Jesus cannot be truly man, nor can he be truly God. And that is the opposite of the gospel that Paul preached to the Colossians. He said that Jesus Christ is God himself in human flesh, came to save the world. These people are trying to pervert the name of Jesus Christ, and Paul is very concerned about that. Let's look uh, again at the scripture reading. Let's miss uh, Ioana just read for us in verse 9 through 14. And you will see the heart apart in all of this. He said, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul is extremely thankful that the Colossians have been united in their love toward one another because of the name of Jesus Christ. But he said, Guys, since the day that I have heard from my friend Apaphras about you, I just cannot stop praying for you. I cannot stop praying that you, would just, that you would just understand who is this Jesus God that you are serving, that you would just have wisdom, have supernatural wisdom, spiritual wisdom and understanding just so that you may know, what does the text say? That you may know how to walk in a manner worthy of him. I pray that you have supernatural strength from God himself just so that you may know what is the knowledge of his will. Or in another words, that you may know what exactly Jesus wants for your life. Christian, we are not just walking around aimlessly in our lives after we became Christian, right? We don't just say, I believe in Jesus and now I just, you know, go to church and just still go in the, dire the direction that I was going before. Paul said, no, I'm praying to God without ceasing that you would understand the knowledge of his will, as to walk in a manner worthy of this name so that you may be fully pleasing to him. There is a direction. So this morning for you, Christian, I want that all of you know exactly as you walk out of this building this morning from the passage, Colossians 1, 15, 20, who Jesus is and what type of mission that he 
is having for you, what type of direction he wants you to walk toward, and how to walk toward um, that direction. He said, and Paul makes a lot of great demands concerning the Colossians. He wants them to be walk, walking in a manner worthy of him, that we already um, established, but also to bear fruit, and that they be strengthened according to Jesus' power for all endurance and patience with joy. For all endurance and patience with joy. Not only he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ, he wants them to suffer for Jesus Christ with joy. I'll give you one more name for Jesus that I want you to consider, Christians. He is your hope, your life, and all of that. But can you say that he is your enduring joy with him suffering? Can you walk away from this message saying that concerning what we will look at in the passage today? And for you, um, some of you here, you sang the songs with us. You heard all the names about Jesus being our hope and our life and our comforter. You sang the songs, you heard the names, but then you would walk away from this building. You would go home and you would hit your toe against a, a table and you yell out his name as if that name means nothing to you, as if he is not the creator that made you. So this is my thesis to you uh, this morning, that Jesus Christ is precious. He is precious to many of us in this building because he, this is just not something that we do every Sunday. This is our most faithful king. This is our dearest friend. And we are here this morning because Jesus, Jesus Christ is worthy of everything else that we are to give to him. So uh, may God grant me favor um, as we look into um, possibly, according to many scholars, the greatest text in the whole entire Bible concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, I would say many, and I would agree with scholars when they said it possibly was one of the early hymns, early songs concerning the name of Jesus, just like the song we just sang today that gets Jesus a lot of names. In this song, I dare say, we have many names for Jesus. So pray with me. Dear Father, I pray that um, even now you would magnify the name of your Son, that we would see for ourselves what does the living Word of God have to say about Jesus Christ, that we would see him for who he truly is. Help us, Lord, send your Holy Spirit even now that we may sense the power of Jesus Christ, that you would rule in our hearts alone. Amen. Let us behold Jesus Christ together. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Who is this Jesus, Paul, that uh, you are asking us to give our lives away? Well, this is Paul's answer. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him are the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is what the living word of God has to say concerning Jesus Christ. I believe that Paul has um, some structure even within this exhortation that he has for Jesus. I believe that Paul is making two points concerning Jesus Christ. Number one, he is the Lord of all creation. You can see that in verse 15 to 16. Number two, he is the Lord of the new creation that is to come, starting from the beginning of the, the middle of verse 18. Um, he is the beginning to the end. And I'll show you that. <clears throat> Look with me at verse 15. You will see a structure. He is, comma, the firstborn. And then verse 16 explains verse 16. He is, comma, the firstborn, for by him. For him means because. So he is the firstborn because. Okay, jump with me to the middle of verse uh, 18. The same structure. He is, comma, the firstborn. And then verse 19 explains verse 18 again. For in him, so again, he, he is, comma, the firstborn 
because you see how Paul is making a parallelism between these two passages. One is saying that Jesus Christ is the law of the current creation. The second one is Jesus Christ is the law of the new creation. So again, this is my main point to you this morning. Jesus has made all things and he is making all things new. All right. Paul does not want to uh, waste any time. He starts with a very scandalous um, claim. Look at uh, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. If you know anything about God, he dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him. He is indescribable. Any attempt to describe God comprehensively is to limit him ultimately. Think about that. Um, when Moses met God, he asked of him, Lord, who are you? How, how can I describe you to my people? God himself could not point to anything else in creation. He could not point to the mountains and say, well, I'm like that. He could not point to the lightning or the ocean and say, well, I'm like this or like that. He said what? I am who I am. That is the key point to how you can describe God. You can only point to God to describe God himself. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here. He said he is the image of the invisible God. Paul is using the same structure. Jesus Christ is God, and God is God. And of course, you don't believe me yet, so I'll show you. Um, many, many years, even before uh, Paul ever made this statement, Philip came to Jesus, and you know, he said, Jesus, I, I get all your teaching concerning the Father already. Just show us the Father. Well, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He's, he's basically essentially saying to Philip, Philip, I am the visible image of the invisible God. God could not point to anything else in creation to describe himself when Moses asked him that question. But 2,000 years ago, he pointed to that little baby in Bethlehem and he said, that's exactly who I am. He pointed to that carpenter in the backyard of Joseph and he said, that is exactly who I am. And Paul is making this statement that Jesus Christ himself is the indescribable God. He is God being described in human flesh. So what does this mean? And then we go to the next uh, statement. That he is the firstborn of all creation. Let me ask you this. Have you ever wanted, any of you, have, have you ever wanted to start a cult? <laughs> well, just, well, just if you do, I'll give you one tip. Just pick one verse from the Bible and just go to town with your interpretation. That's exactly what the Jehovah Witness did with this passage. They said, there you go, the first one of all creation. He was the first to be created. No question about that. Well, why would Paul contradict himself after saying that Jesus Christ is God himself and now jump to the next uh, phrase and say, well, he was firstly created even though he was the image of the invisible God. And then you have to recognize for yourself that in the Bible, a lot of times the word firstborn does not indicate the order of birth. It indicates the status of the person within the family, the ranking of the person within the family. We learned that from Mason last week. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob, but because of what he did, because of his rebellion, he no longer has the status of the firstborn. Same thing happened to Esau. But of course, you need to be convinced. So let's go to our Psalms, verse, um, chapter 89. Psalm chapter 89. Look at verse 3. God said to David, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. And then in verse 25, God said this very interesting thing concerning David. Verse 27. And I will make him David. I will make David the firstborn. Whoa. Hold on. Pause. Um, David is definitely not the first king. Matter of fact, he's not even the firstborn in his family. He was the youngest within his family. So what does God mean when he said that he's making David his firstborn? 
what does God mean when he said that, he, that Israel is his firstborn? Of course, this has nothing to do with order of birth. Look at uh, the next phrase. God said, I will make David the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This has everything to do with status. So when Paul is saying he is the image of the invisible God and he is the first, firstborn of all creation, he's saying that he is God himself, he who has the highest status of all creation. He is the inheritor of all creation. So we have the first two, two phrases. He is the image of the invisible God and he is the firstborn of all creation. He is God and he is the boss. That's basically it's the summary of the first statement. So what does this mean to all of you, right? If you claim to believe in Jesus, he is not such to be agree with. I go to class and I listen to my teacher's lecture, I agree with him. But Jesus is not to be agree with. He is to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped. You don't just agree with him as a teacher or a prophet. Can you, as a Christian, can anyone look at your life for a day and see that you are worshipping Jesus or are you simply agreeing with Jesus? Then we go to the next uh, statement. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The apostle does not want to leave any room for speculation. He said that by Jesus all things were created. All things. Gnostic, all things. Well, but Paul had to clarify himself further. All things in heaven and on earth, from interstellar to cellular, it is he who gave the sun its light, and it is he who gave you the color of your eyes. And then, you know, some skeptic would say, okay, we get it, Paul. Like, of course, Jesus, you know, he, he created everything in heaven and on earth. He created other material things, right? Nope, that's not what I'm saying. Paul went on to say, visible and invisible. He created light and darkness, angels and demons, spiritual beings, cosmic, fearsome entities. You recognize that within the Bible, we are aware of beings out there, cosmic beings, angels, that are as powerful as planets, that they can go down and destroy a whole entire army with one strike, or a whole entire city. If you were to see these creatures, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. But when Jesus ascended unto heaven as a man, when he walked through those heavenly gates, these beings bowed down to him because all things were created by him, visible and invisible. Then, within these visible and invisible realms, were the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, from the highest heaven to the lowest hell. There has not been one person who ever been raised up or have been brought low without the power given them by Jesus Christ. And then, as you look through this whole entire verse, you see some really interesting words concerning the uh, relationship that Jesus has, has with our creation. It said that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. What is the difference between these three uh, vocabularies? By him means that he is the author of all creation. He has ownership over the most majestic angel, to your ugliest cat. And through him means that he is the sustainer of all creation, that he upholds creation moment by moment, and you can feel this reality. Just put your hand on your heartbeat and feel that Jesus Christ, even now, is upholding you moment by moment. And lastly, all things was created for him. This means that he is the receiver of all creation. Creation is created for one and one purpose only. You are created for one and one purpose only. To magnify, to glorify, to beautify the name of Jesus Christ. It would be the most foolish thing to not live for him. It would be the most vain thing as if you are a sunflower and you say, you know what, I'm not going to look at the sun for nourishment. I'm going to swim, I'm going to bathe in my own beauty without looking to the sun for nourishment. That is ludicrous in the same way that the earth were to say, you know what, I'll just revolve around myself. I don't need to revolve around the sun. That would be going against its very design. 
So that's what Paul meant when he said that all things was created by him, through him, and for him, because he is the author, the sustainer, and the receiver of all creation. Having established that Jesus is the Lord of all creation, Paul takes a step back to make a transition. Next verse. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is before all things. By logic, we should know that all things have beginning. There was a time when this building did not exist. There was a time when many of you in this building never existed. No one ever knew you. No one ever remembered you. And even before you, there have been generation of generation of people who have come and go, kings and peasants, cowards and nobles, and all of them have passed away. All of them have been forgotten. Then you go further and you look at the great uh, creation of nature. You see mountains and seas and you look at these things and you think, you know, similar they have been here forever because back when my mom was here and my grandma was here, these mountains have been there forever. But you know that they have not been there forever. They had their own beginning. And then you go further into the heavens and you see planets and stars and, and then you see the sun, that one big ball of fire that gives light and energy to everything else. And it's just so tempting to think that that ball of fire has always been there, that it has always been eternal. But I promise you, there was a time when there was no sun. Then let's go even further. Think about in the invisible realms of angelic beings that have been, this, been there since the foundation of the universe. Again, there was a time when they did not exist. And I would dare to say there was a time when there was no time before time was, before time existed. Jesus is. And if you think about that, Paul is no longer talking about a prophet. He is talking about the eternal God. Then he goes on to make the next statement. And in him, all things hold together. Not only has he been before all things, but all things go on existing only because he continues to uphold them according to his purpose. So what is Jesus' purpose in upholding all things? We established that all things was created for him. Then this is uh, a question that I would like you to consider with me. Why is Jesus still upholding all things together when all things are no longer for him? Why didn't Jesus just stop? Just say, forget all of that. The moment all things was infected by sin, why didn't he just give up on us the moment Adam and Eve sinned? Why does he keep on holding all things together when all things have been all together infected by rebellion. Man is no longer for God, and creation is no longer for man. That's why we have wars and divisions and natural disaster, pandemics. That's why marriages are broken. That's why justice is perverted. That's why beauty is destroyed, and you, you are separated from God. Do you know that you are supposed to die last night already? That none of us have ever lived up to the purpose that was given us? to love God with all our hearts. I must tell uh, you this one story, and I hope that this will bring this reality of Jesus Christ holding all things together home for you. I was talking with uh, an atheist friend uh, on a very nice sunny day when he was sitting comfortably on a chair, drinking his uh, can of soda. And he was telling me about how cruel God has been to him, how unkind God has been to him his whole entire life. So I remember uh, this phrase, that Jesus is holding all things together, and I tell him this, and I want you to think about this. Why is this crooked place not in chaos? And why is it that you are sitting comfortably on a chair when the ground should have opened up and swallowed you? Why is the sun giving you warmth and light even now when it should have burned you? And don't you know that even the can of soda that you are enjoying, when that liquid goes down your throat, who is it that's keeping it together? Who is it that's keeping all the taste and flavor second by second so it would go down and nourish your body? Why doesn't it turn into poison and totally destroy your organs? And why is it that you are given 
breath right now just to curse him, just to curse him. Can you not see the kindness of God toward those who hate him? Can you not see that his kindness is supposed to lead you to repentance? So why is this extending this kind of kindness toward us? Why is Jesus Christ still holding all things together? I'll give you one hint. This is a quote from uh, Octavius, uh, Octavius Winslow, a Baptist preacher back in the 1800s, and he said this. So completely, so completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by his own sacrifice that he created the tree upon which he was to die. And he nurtured, he nourished, he held together from infancy the men who would grow up to nail him onto that cross. Why is Jesus holding all things together for rebellious creatures? Because he is bent upon saving sinners. Because he has a mission to unite all things together to him again. Because he wants to make this sorry creation his again. And we will unpack that in a few minutes. This is where Paul makes his transition from Jesus being the law of all creation to Jesus being the law of the creation that is to come. And that's why we have the next statement. And he is the head of the body, the church. Okay, so we go from he is before all things and in him all things hold together to he is the head of the body, the church. I, I, I don't know about you, but um, I think it was interesting to me the first time I read it. I said, you know, doesn't that sound like a downgrade? Because he just went from talking about Jesus being the creator of angels and him being before time and all of that, and now he's the head of the church. My pastor can be the head of the church. Well, you just don't get it because this phrase has everything to do with the phrase before that. He is before all things. He holds all things together because of the church. Because he chose a group of people, he chose the church before the foundation of time, before the foundation of the universe. And he is holding all things even now because of the church. But you do not believe me. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I am making a thesis that Jesus chose the church before all things and he is holding all things together because of the mission that he has given the church. The church is the means by which Jesus is making all things new again. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 10. And now we will replace the word us with the word the church because Paul is talking to the Ephesian church. And I hope this will give some clarity on what I'm talking about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed the church in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose the church in him before the foundation of the world, that the church should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined the church for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed the church in the beloved. In him, the church had redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon the church. In all wisdom and insight making known to the church, hear this, in all wisdom and insight making known to the church, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The mystery, the mystery of the will of God is not revealed to angels, you of little faith. The mystery of the will of God is revealed to you, dearly beloved Christians. The mystery of the will of God is revealed to the church and the church alone. So that is why he is the head of body. The church is on the same level as he is the firstborn of all creation. In the same way that Jesus is Lord of the current creation, he is the head of the church, the new creation. The church is the prototype 
of the new creation within the corrupted creation. The church is heaven on earth. The church, like I said, is the means by which Jesus will redeem and unite all things back to himself. That is why he is holding all things together even now, so that the church will be formed and be together on this mission to bring all things back to Jesus Christ. And this is why we baptize. This is why we do membership, because Jesus is making all things new, so that we can point to a group of people who have been baptized, who have been members in, in a church, and we say, those are the new creation. Those are whom have been redeemed from the curse of, of the fall. And these are those who are on a mission to make all things new along with Jesus. Jesus made them new and multiplied them through the ministry of reconciliation. And this is the kicker. We, the church, we will win. And we will accomplish our mission. How do I know that? Next verse. Because Jesus Christ, our captain, our head, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you know that... Um, no matter who you are, this statement should speak to the very longing of your soul. That Jesus Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And I'll tell you why. All of you here, you're trying to do something. You work hard, you rise up early, and you go lay to bed at night because you want to become someone. You want to do something. You want to accomplish something. You want to do a lot with this life, you want to enjoy this life, but you know deep down it's no life because your clock is ticking. There is a judgment awaiting you called death. You need a new beginning because you already messed up your beginning already. Your beginning is now heading to death. doesn't matter how handsome you are, how strong you are one day. It will not matter. It will not matter at all. And some of you, you sit here and say, well, that's not true, Damon. I'm enjoying the heck out of my life. That's just not true. You are accomplishing many things. You are making castle. You are making monuments of sand. That one day the wave of death will come and wipe all of that away. Just like with this creation, you will be utterly forgotten. You will become less than nothing. None of that will matter. Why? Because you are in Adam. You are the sons of Adam. You are the sons and daughters of Adam. And Adam already messed up your beginning. And you're not helping. Think about that. Adam was your beginning. You follow him, right? You as the human race, as mankind. And then Adam was the firstborn of the dead. And because of that, in everything else, Adam is miserable. That's why you, you follow Adam, the firstborn of the dead, and that's why in everything else that is less than death, you are miserable because you know where you are heading. You are following Adam, your captain, to live in order to die. But oh, that you would receive this good news from Paul this morning, that Jesus Christ is the new beginning. He is the beginning of the new creation. He's not the firstborn of the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in everything else that is less than death, he might be preeminent. He might be victorious. If you follow Adam, you're going somewhere that you know that will totally, totally miserable. But if you are following Jesus, you will become preeminent because he has come to make all things new and he has come to defeat your greatest enemy, death. Look with me to um, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. 20 to 27. In fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the, resur the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruit. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Jesus defeated the greatest enemy of mankind, and therefore in everything else that is less, that is less than death, he will be victorious. But how does Jesus go about reversing the curse of sin and unites all things to himself again? We have the answer in the next verse. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How does Jesus make peace with sinful men and broken creation? Why is, why is Jesus alone qualified? Because he is the God-man. He is truly man and truly God. He satisfied God's justice as a sinless man, and he redeemed man's sinfulness as God's own righteousness. Paul surely is provoking the heretics by saying that in Jesus Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you go later in uh, Colossians chapter 2, Paul makes it even clearer. He said that the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And that just hurts um, the Gnostic a whole lot because this is what they believe. They believe that holiness, holiness, God, divine, does not mix with human flesh. They only miss one word. Holiness does not mix with sinful human flesh, but holiness does mix with perfectly moral human flesh. And that's exactly who Jesus Christ is. That's exactly who he is. If you think about this, uh, this reality is expressed to us in Genesis chapter 6, when God looked down at mankind after they have sinned, and he said, Indeed, my spirit cannot dwell with them forever, for they are flesh. So we know that because of our sin, all of you have been separated from God. God cannot dwell with mankind anymore. Of course, throughout the history of redemption, we see God temporarily dwells in tabernacles, in temples. But even Solomon, the wisest man on earth, in 1 Kings 8, verse 27, this is what King Solomon said when he had just finished building the temple for God to dwell in. He said, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Does God intend to dwell with us again? Behold, heaven and the highest of heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. God cannot dwell with sinful men, but 2,000 years ago, God found his perfect temple when Jesus came out of his baptism. What happened? Heavens opened and a voice declared from on high, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased to dwell. This is God's perfect instrument to enter into human world without compromising his holiness because Jesus Christ himself is God in the flesh. The condescension that was his, he whose glory knows no end, became a man. Just think about that for one moment. In 1 John, the Apostle John, he said, he who is from the beginning, he who has no beginning. And then he uses really weird language. He said, I saw him, we saw him with our eyes, and we touched him. Yeah, there you saw people with your eyes. Paul, not Paul, John just could not contend the thoughts that I touched, I touched the invisible God. I touched God in the flesh. And I so want you to be marvel at this. I'll tell you um, one of my most favorite movies ever. Shrek, hear me out. In Shrek, this one thing happened. This wonderful princess decided to be married to an ogre. This beautiful creature, this desire of all the kingdoms within that universe. She decided that she's going to be an ogre, a nasty, filthy, goblin-looking-like creature. And she came into his filthy warmth and said, you know what? I love him so much and I desire him and I want to be with him that I will become like him in his likeness. Is that not exactly what Jesus did for all of you? 
he looked at you as rebellious, sinful, condemned, unclean sinners, and he said, I'll be exactly like them. I'll become like a creature of the dirt. And that is who you are. That is who we are. And Jesus said, I'll be a man just so that I can be united, be married to the church forever. If you were to die right now, if you were to be in heaven at this moment, you would see God as a man. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in that one man. And he will be man in the same way when I, when I was a little boy. I, I just could not fathom it. Why would you, Fiona, choose to be an old girl forever? Why would you? And Jesus is even now, as I'm speaking, is a human forever because of all of, all of us who have put trust in Jesus Christ that he became a man to redeem men from the curse. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And God to Jesus Christ, the next phrase, the God-man has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I have just talked to you about your personal salvation. But this statement is not about your personal salvation. It is about a cosmic salvation of all things. All things were designed to have a united relationship with Jesus. All things obey initially. Um, if you think about that, when Jesus created all things, he tell uh, the mountain to be planted over there, the planet to be in their orbit, and they said, yes, Lord, I'll do exactly that. And then he told the angel to stay in their domain. Satan disobeyed, and Satan was matched with perfect justice. He got cast out of heaven immediately. And then he turned to that one little tiny man in that garden. He said, listen to me. And Adam and Eve said, we will not. We will not. So ever since that day, everything had been separated because all things that were made for him have decided to be against him. So of course, creation, according to Romans chapter 8, creation is groaning. Creation is crying over the rebellion of man. That's why we have natural disaster. Creation is wondering, when will this end? When will we be united again? And when will this separation cease? But heaven, heaven has a greater question. How can this be? How can God be just? He was just in condemning Satan, but shouldn't Adam received the same treatment as Satan when he sinned? How can God be just and at the same time be the justifier of all sinners? This universe needs a reconciliation. This universe needs an answer to all of that. In the fullness of time, God pointed to a naked man on a tree and he said, Peace, peace to all of you, peace to you, creation. For my blood, my blood was spilled on the ground to reverse your curse. And peace to you, heaven. I am just in killing my son for the sin of my people, paying the debt that they owe me. And peace to you, men and women. Though blood was demanded of you, blood was demanded of you because of your rebellion, here is my blood for your reconciliation, your sin. Your sin for my son, my son's innocence for you, your punishment for my son, my son's marriage for you, your separation for him, and his acceptance for you. Let us be reconciled. Peace to all of you. Peace to creation, peace to heaven, and peace to men. Men and women, I implore you on behalf of Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God, even now. You can have him today if you would just come to him with one posture. This is how you come to Jesus. Empty-handedly, you come and you say, Lord, I have heard and I am aware and I have learned today that you are, create, you are the creator of all things who need no one and I have nothing to offer you except for my need of reconciliation, for my need of you, for my need of being 
together with you again with all creation and heavens. That is how you come to Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't do anything over here because we think that we can ever be united back to Jesus because of anything that we do, because of anything that is in this creation. But we look toward He that is before all things, He that is outside of creation and say, Lord, you and you alone by your blood can cleanse us. You and you alone can brew in our hearts. You and you alone will bring us back home. You and you alone will make all things new. And you will bring us home to Eden, to when we were walking with you, when we were made to have pleasure in you, to enjoy you forever. Friends, you will walk away from this message never being the same. Not because of what I said, but because of what you have heard. You have heard the message of reconciliation. So that on the day you die, none of you will be able to say, I have not heard. I was not aware of the mission that he has. I am not aware of the ministry of reconciliation that he has offered me. All of you from now on, I have given you the burden of immortality. You will walk away from this place knowing that there are only two choices to make in, in this life. Whether you were to live according to your design, that all things were created by him, through him, and, and for him, or you will follow your father, Adam, and say, I will not. I will follow the firstborn of the dead, and I will own his beginning, and I will go back to the dirt. If you have not trusted him, you are given air for that very purpose, even now. You can come talk to me after the service. You can come talk to whoever that come here with you to know what does it mean to follow Jesus. You can talk to the elders. Even now, as I said before, the clock is ticking for you. And for Christian, this is Jesus Christ. This is the good news. This is the mystery of God's will revealed to you alone. Even many of you have heard and, and rejected. Jesus said that, Father, I praise you that only to the children and the people who have humbled themselves, they have understood the mystery of your will. But those who are outside are those who excluded themselves. And my application for you is simple. Look at uh, the next passage. Colossians 1, 21 to 23. Colossians 1, 21 to 23. And you, Christian, who once was alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He is worthy of your lives. And what is keeping you or me from being madly in love with Jesus Christ? What is keeping us from being holy and blameless before Him? What is keeping Him from being precious to you? I pray that um, you would walk away from this service determined to have a habitual sight of Jesus, that you would, just for the first time, read the Bible as if you have never read it, that you would pray as if you never given the permission to pray, that you would talk with people about Jesus as if you just met Him yesterday, that you would hope for the new creation for heaven as if it's coming tomorrow, that you would just discover Jesus brand new, and to find out that He has been always, always, always altogether wonderful and altogether lovely and altogether precious to you. It's on the first day that you met Him. It's on the first day that He met you. That on the first day that He brought you by your hand and say, let us be reconciled, let us be together again. And you missionaries, you go where he wants you to go. All of us is on a mission, not to be the next superhero, but uh, to have the fun seat of how he is making all things new in the darkest places on the earth. That is our mission, that is our direction, Christian, is that we, as the prototype of the new creation, Jesus has made all things and he's making all things new. And what is the means that he's doing that? He's using 
the new creation within the old creation to bring about the creation that is to come. That is your mission. So whatever keeps you from being steadfast, whatever keeps you from being hopeful, from faith, put them to death. Go tell sinners that they too can be reconciled to God. So again, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? What does that name mean to you? And how will you walk from now on? How will you live a life that is fully pleasing to him? Let us pray. Dear Father, I thank you that uh, you have revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus, and in him we have peace. In him we have reconciliation, not through our effort, but through his blood, that he became a man, a bloody man on the cross, and died for our transgression, died for our evilness, and rise again and pay the debt of our sins in full. And he declared to all of us who have put our trust in him that we are reconciled, we are adopted into his family. I pray that even now, this, this morning, many of us who are outside of Jesus Christ, that we would claim him, that they would claim him for their own, that they would have a new beginning, that they would have the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything else, they will be preeminent. One day you will rise, and we will rise with you also. Dear Lord Jesus, we are still poor sinners who need to look to you. This has been so many years, but many of us, we, we are still in desperate need of looking unto you. Remind us this morning. Remind us. In your name we pray. Amen.